A very warm welcome to Fly to Freedom, an eating disorder recovery podcast that aims to give hope and inspiration to others trapped in the dark prison of an eating disorder. To reach out and take steps to recover and fly to freedom and peace. I'm Julia Trahane, your host, an eating disorder recovery coach who is now living in freedom after 40 years of anorexia, orthorexia and exercise addiction. My mission is to give love and support to anyone who feels ready to start their recovery journey. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm very grateful to you for being here. Please like, follow and rate it to enable me to reach others who need help. Right, let's get on with today's episode. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Fly to Freedom. Uh, Super exciting. We have Matt Davis here, a guest today to talk to us about eating disorders, nutrition and the fitness world. Matt is a nutritionist specializing in disordered eating and body image. He is the founder of The Flourishing Athlete, where he aims to help athletes and fitness enthusiasts develop a positive relationship with food, body and self so that they can flourish in life and sport. Hello, Matt. Hello, how are we doing? It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. So excited to have you here. Um, the fitness world and sport and exercise plays such a, such a huge part in eating disorders that um, I think it's really important that we talk about this. Yeah. But first, I have some quick fire icebreaker questions, if you're ready for them. Yep, go for it. Let's do it. What is your favourite smell? Oh, oh, that's easy. Coffee beans. Coffee beans. Oh, nice. My partner bought me a lovely, a lovely coffee, proper coffee machine, you know, like a home barista style. So every morning, um, the smell of fresh coffee beans is, yeah, unbeatable. Nice. Yeah. Actually, I have trained my husband to bring me coffee first thing in the morning before he expects me to speak to him, which is fabulous. He does it really well. I have to implement that. I think I might be struggling. The complexity of this machine means that it, I'll either have maybe not the best tasting coffee bought to me or I'll have a broken machine, one of the two. Because um, <laughs> she's not into her coffee at all. But um, yeah, I'll see. Maybe in the future, a couple of years time. <laughs> um, do you have a party trick? Oh, goodness. Do I have a party trick? Uh do you know what? Nothing springs to mind. However, one thing I, I used to be able to do, and I say used to, I probably still can, but I haven't done it in a long time, is um, I can flip up from my back to my feet with no hands. Oh, cool. So if you That's a party hands. trick. Yeah, we'll go with that then. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I'd love to ask you to demo it, but it doesn't look practical right it now. It doesn't, and it's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> um. When you were a little boy, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, do you know what? I had, I think everyone at one point in my class, at least, who I was at school with, wanted to be an architect. For some reason, that was a real thing, everyone. But then I went into, I really wanted to be an estate agent at one point. Because <laughs> you're normally going to get your footballers and your athletes. And I went through that phase too. But I was fascinated, and I still am actually, at looking in and around other people's houses and um, the way they're designed and what you could do with a house and where I'd put the furniture. And I know that sounds so bizarre, but I am. Um, oh, it's just a natural curiosity, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so I, I will go with a state agent, as bizarre as uh, it might sound. Um, 
What qualities do you most admire in others? If you could pick one. I'm going to go with compassion because I'm, I've just finished, or well, I say just finished. I've been working on um, sort of, you know, compassionate mind training a bit recently and reading um, Paul Gilbert's book, The Compassionate Mind. And um, I think it's a very all-encompassing um, quality, actually, that doesn't necessarily, you know, I think often, without going too much into detail with it, I think it often gets conflated with kindness. And I think it's a lot more than kindness. Yes. Um, you know, I think it can, it's holding one's best interest at heart and uh, and doing so in a way that promotes well-being. And um, so I'd say compassion. I like to think I, I'm compassionate. I like to think I surround myself with other people who are very compassionate. So wow. yeah. that's beautiful. Um, okay, two more questions. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, do you know what? There's probably is better piece of advice, but without um, without having it written down, and I might butcher the the quote, but I really like the quote, and I have been given it as advice as well before. Um, you know, you you regret the things you don't do, and that sort of yeah. idea of, of of that it's a lot easier to regret not doing something than doing something and and it maybe not working out. So, I think for me with maybe my personality style, that piece of advice resonates as someone who might be more timid to do certain things without it looking like I would be. Um, I would I certainly would resonate with the idea of being more timid to doing certain things. Um, so yeah, we'll go with that one. We'll go with that. Okay. One. That's a really good one. And last question. If you had a magic wand and could change one thing to change the world, what would you do? Oh gosh, that's such deep questions. <laughs> Nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> what would I do? Oh well, there's you know, there's a lot of things, aren't there, that that you know need changing in the world. So many. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier about the compassionate mind and and how I remember one thing I've really taken from that book is how suffering is an integral and common and unavoidable part of human life and the human. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly wouldn't get rid of suffering because I think sort of out of suffering is, you know, out of suffering comes joy and comes the ability to experience positive emotion. Um, We can't have one without the other. Right. So I I wouldn't get, I don't think I'd get rid of anything as sort of massive as that, but, you know, access, let's go with very on topic, um, on topic here. We'll go access to food, adequate access to nutritious an adequate access to a, a, an appropriate amount of nutritious um, food. So food insecurity, I'd, I'd get rid of and we'll keep it on topic. So we'll go Perfect. with that. That's a brilliant one. Everyone deserves to eat. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. So after all those questions, which obviously were a little more than you expected, <laughs> <laughs> get you on your toes first thing in the morning. <laughs> no, they weren't more than I expected. They were just good. They were challenging in a good way. We'll go with that. <laughs> Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, a bit your, about your journey and why you do what you do. Yeah, so, you know, I've always been, um, you give the introduction in that I, I own the Flourishing Athlete or created the Flourishing Athlete. It's fairly new, I actually only created it earlier on this year. Um, but I've always been into sport from a really young age. I've played cricket and rugby and um, to be honest with you, as many sports as I can 
think of from a really young age in terms of primary school and secondary school you know sport was a a really big part of my life then I went to a secondary school that was very sporty um, and it was really I guess just after I finished school or, or towards the back end of finishing school in sixth form when I was I guess started to take uh, a particular sport more seriously and that was touch rugby so I got selected into the England under 18s team and um captained the England under 18s team in the junior European championships and off the back of that I got selected into the England men's squad um, for touch rugby and for those who don't know much about touch it's a very sort of fitness orientated sport Um, and I guess around maybe the same time during sixth form I also probably got into fitness as well and lifting weights and I wasn't very knowledgeable about it but it was the in thing to do you know I went to an all boys school that turned into a mixed school in sixth form and girls were introduced into the school but it was in sixth form that I'd say um yeah going to the gym became a bit more of a maybe an admirable thing to do I guess it was something that was recognized as being a a good thing to do but anyway so I got into my fitness I got into my touch rugby I played in the England um touch rugby team from 2015 I got into the squad first and then um, I suffered an injury in 2018 I ruptured my ACL and had you know oh I know it's a long one it's a very common one in the sport actually yes yeah I had a bit of you know had a bit of time out and but during that time you know it was a great time playing touch rugby we won a a European gold medal and went to Australia and played in the New South Wales State Cup, which was amazing, great experience. Um, but basically, sport and fitness in that part of my life became a massive, massive part of my identity. It was mm-hmm. sort of who I was. I really associated myself as a as someone who was into fitness, as someone who was this athlete, as someone who looked after their body, quote unquote. Um, and I ended up going to university and doing a sport and exercise science degree. I went to Loughborough University where I guess naturally, as you can imagine, it's a sports, well, a predominantly sports science university amongst other things, but very well known for it. Yeah. So so I'm surrounded by other athletes um, in my block. You know, we've got swimmers waking up above us at five o'clock every morning, going down to train. And it was just a very, you you know, you're in a sporting environment. You're surrounded Mm -hmm. by so you start learning about nutrition you start learning more about the gym naturally through my sports science degree and so I guess sport and fitness became even an even bigger part of my life an even bigger part of my identity you know I learned how to eat in a way that would optimize performance and um, it all became very my nutrition became very numbers based. Oh, I've got to have 30 grams per gram of this and do this much protein at this point and have this many protein feedings throughout the day. And this supplement's great and this one's not so great. And if I eat, you know, this amount of sugar per day, maybe that will increase my risk of this by the, by this amount. And it was all very numbers yeah. research. And what we were taught in the in the sport and exercise degree, you know, I, I had no understanding of the psychology behind eating. I, you know, more saw it as this mechanical thing that potentially could support my sporting performance and my fitness um, and and all of this stuff. And, I, and at this point as well, I also started to develop a, a pretty rotten relationship with my body. I was really, throughout university, I was very, very um, critical of my body. I scrutinised it. I spent a lot of time in the mirror 
I'd imagine, I'd imagine, I never got diagnosed, by the way, with any, um, you know, body dysmorphic disorder, any eating disorder. But I imagine had I gone to the, had I gone to the GP or had I, had I gone down that route, I'd imagine I'd have been diagnosed with um, body dysmorphic disorder. Not, you know, I know a fair bit about body dysmorphic disorder and it wasn't as serious as we see a lot of cases. It can be a devastating but I, I did spend a lot of time thinking about my body. It did cause me a lot of distress after I'd eaten meals and I was slightly bloated. Um, and it was such a huge part of my identity. And I, I, you know, I got into, there was a lot of compulsive exercise to maintain my, I guess, level of leanness really and level of yeah. muscularity. Um, there was a lot of sort of disordered eating behavior started coming in around needing to have certain amount of protein, certain timings and not having, um not having sugar at certain points of the day and a lot of orthorexic tendencies as well yes it sounds very orthorexic yeah and it was and it was a lot of it was not just tied up in health but also in performance as well Um, so I was you know I was binge eating I was obsessed with my body and the mirror I was exercising often two times three times a day sometimes uh so it was just a massive massive part of my identity Anyway, I got my injury in 2018, which actually saw me stop playing touch rugby for England um, with the World Cup in 2019. So it was gutting to miss out on that because it's a bit like the Olympics and a bit like, I guess, you know, normal rugby or football where you've got a World Cup every four years. Touch rugby is the same. You've got this. And that is the event that really... That's what you've been working towards. It is. It is. You've got other really important competitions. You've got Euros on a more yearly basis or other competitions. But the World Cup is the is the one that we are working towards. And you would accept maybe, I don't know, I say you would, maybe it would be quite hard to accept this, but you'd accept losing a Euros or not winning a Euros if it if it was the appropriate step within a four-year plan to get you to the World Cup. The World Cup's the big thing we're working towards. Yeah. It was, you know, quite tricky to miss out on that. I was on the cusp of sort of being able to come back in time for it. So it was a real... You know, it was sort of maybe seven or eight months after I'd done my ACL was the World Cup. So we're talking about it would have been a very tight squeeze to get back for it. Yes. Which I gave it my all to get back for, but fell short in terms of being fit enough to play. So anyway, despite not playing elite touch anymore, I still was engaging in a lot of disordered eating behaviours. You know, I'd done my personal training qualification and I was... um, into my nutrition I ended up doing a master's in nutrition later on and I actually did end up getting back into the England squad England touch rugby squad a bit later on um, and I I actually pulled out myself um, a little bit into it after thinking about whether or not it was something I wanted to do but in the meantime I went to university in 2020 to do my master's in nutrition and it was only towards the back end of my master's I started hearing about and learning about intuitive eating and non-diet approaches and, you know, not eating in a way that was so tied up with trying to manipulate your body or maintain levels of leanness, which is what I was totally focused on at the mm-hmm. point I wasn't eating in the morning so I could bank my calories and sort of, you know, effectively binge or overeat my, you know, my meals later on and still maintain my leanness and track it all and all of this stuff. So I, um, Learned about intuitive eating. It was a bit of an eye opener. It was challenging a lot of beliefs that I had, which is always uncomfortable, challenging Very, beliefs yes. that have made up your identity and that have been ingrained in you and stuff as well that 
I'd been preaching to other people as a personal trainer in the fitness world going, oh, you should do this and you shouldn't do that. And, you know, there's a lot of weight stigma in there for me that only after having learnt do you realise was there. Um, so anyway, we got to a point where I did my degree and for my research project for my master's degree, I did it all about intuitive eating. I was interviewing people who had dieted in the past and are now intuitive eating and, and learning about their experiences and the effects they feel it's had on their health and their well-being. And it was all resoundingly positive, you know, better relationship with food, better relationship with body. And I actually interviewed a few people who were very sporty and athletes and said, actually, I'm performing better in my sport now. I'm better fueled because I was restricting my eating before and all of this stuff. So intuitive eating became a big thing. And I delved into the intuitive eating world and became immersed in trying to practice it myself and, and trying to repair my relationship with food and my body, which I, I what is a what is a healed relationship with food you know it's a very hard thing to say but it's I certainly feel at peace at food I certainly feel at peace with my body I've got the mental energy I'm eating regularly I'm enjoying my life a lot more than I was so that's where I'm at now and now I'm you know trying to develop an intuitive eating framework develop that framework that is brilliant but make it a bit more athlete specific because it's not marketed. The one thing I felt when I did it was it wasn't marketed for me as a, mm -hmm. as a 26 year old, just turned 26 year old, I was 24 maybe at the time. It, it, whilst I took it on because I had this interest and fell into it and it's brilliant. And I, I'm a big fan of it. I felt like it was marketed towards someone who'd been dieting for health reasons for let's say 15, 20 years, yo-yo dieting. It hadn't worked unhappy with their body um, and wanting an alternative approach and 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 and, it was, and it's brilliant for that but it's also so applicable in my opinion with some adaptions and tweaks to be marketed for for athletes and, and be brought into the fitness world a lot more yeah definitely. so I guess that's the, the plan with the flourishing athlete is let's bring body positivity and body acceptance and body neutrality and all these other concepts let's teach athletes and fitness enthusiasts about them Let's bring intuitive eating into the athletic world, compassionate mind work into the athletic world, because we see a lot of athletes, you know, prevalence of eating disorders, disordered eating, body image problems, all of this stuff, compulsive exercise, all of these problems that maybe come under the athletic diet culture umbrella. You know, they're ever so prevalent in athletes and fitness enthusiasts and exercisers. And actually, um, you know, I would love to be someone who makes an impact in, in helping you know or promoting a different way of doing things in the fitness world which still focuses on fitness and athletics and the brilliant mm -hmm. things bring because I'm a big fan of fitness I want to really put that out there to start with and I've rambled on about myself here but I am not anti-sport or anti-fitness or anti these things I am so pro them and I still play sport I still love my fitness and I'm into the gym but the way we relate to them and the reason we're doing these things and you know is it coming from a place of low self-worth and needing to prove myself and needing the external validation from others and what are the methods we're doing are they disordered are they flexible you know bringing that conversation into this space I think so important because it's very normalized these disordered approaches yes yes that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you actually when you were really struggling with your eating and your body image and stuff were you aware that you were struggling or were you thinking that you were doing all this for health and performance? 
I would say not only was I not aware, I was convinced what I was doing was what everyone else needed to do. So yeah. it was almost the opposite of not even being aware. It was, this is correct. I am better for doing this. I am, uh, I, you look at all this restraint I have. Yes. Oh, people need to learn this from me. Let me be a PT and let me preach my ways of doing things and this dedication, dedication and commitment and, and uh, you know, giving up things is so highly celebrated in the fitness. Absolutely. And so validated by others as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it certainly was for me. And I can see how I got into this spiral because it's, you know, it's wow. Oh, God, yeah. you're amazing for this. Even when we watch sport on TV, we celebrate the performances without knowing whether or not it's a healthy thing. And we know, you know, mental health in athletes is through the roof in terms of um, poor mental health, should I say, is, is through the roof in comparison to the general population. Yet we admire the performance. It, it's, it's quite, um, do you know what, it's when you actually think about it, and again, I love sport. I love watching sport. I love everything that sport brings. But when you really think about some of it, the way we all get behind the Olympics, some of it can be quite Hunger Games-esque in terms of we we sort of have no idea the behaviours that have, and the relationship with the behaviours that have gone in to prepping this athlete for this 100 metre time. And then we sort of sit in our armchairs watching these athletes happily judging, which we're allowed to do, all our opinions and everything. Um, without having any idea of, you know, this athlete here, this athlete here, this athlete here has an eating disorder. Not that we were to Absolutely. know. Um, yeah. and, and it's just sort of normalised and we sort of go, oh, what dedication. It's almost taught, actually. Um, my son, my youngest son, was one of those swimmers that was getting up at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> ah, right. you got to tell him off. He was waking me up all the time, man. And they were, when it was coming up to like nationals or something like that, they were taught that their bodies were machines Mm. Mm. and that they needed to, it was all, as you said, a numbers game and they needed to have this much of this and this much of that. And they were having, they were going in these like pod things that were measuring every aspect of their body and their leanness and, they were treated as machines. They were, it was just all the, oh, what's the words I'm looking for? There was no pleasure in food, no pleasure in eating. It was a mechanical purpose to fuel a machine for an outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I sort of quite enjoy the idea now of looking at, um, you know, you're, you're a human and then an athlete yes and you're a human and then you're an athlete you, you are not an athlete and whenever we all call ourselves athletes and um which is really common and I would identify I guess would I right now maybe I would identify right now as being one but certainly would have strongly we are we are de-emphasizing the other important aspects of us um and that's really important and, and there are certain sports you said was it swimming you said right swimming yes swimming. Yeah, that's really highly common. Do we see disordered eating in? Very, yeah, so much, so so much. You know, and certain sports certainly promote it more than others. Yeah, sports, body weight to power ratio, sports, aesthetic sports. Um, there's a lot, a lot higher a risk in these sports than other sports. 
you know, if we look at a sport that's, and I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that these sports, you can't have an eating disorder or disordered eating or anything like that if you're playing these sports. But let's say rugby, well, it does cater for different body sizes through different positions. Yes. Which 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 we would see as maybe a more accepting uh, approach to the sport. It's not fully accepting, of course, because, um, you know, I remember I played rugby and I got told, oh, you've got to gain muscle. You're way too light. You've got to you've got to be heavier. Um, but don't lose your leanness, of course, because you're really quick. <laughs> at work. So, oh, so cheers. Um, you know, you've got to do something your genetics don't want you to do. You've got to stuff your face and pass fullness. And 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 that's normal because you're a rugby. So I'm not saying that there's there's not a. I think actually even in so I go to a CrossFit gym, and it's just everyday people, but there's still such a huge culture of what you should and shouldn't eat, and how much you should train and how hard you should train and. In some ways, there's almost a badge of honour when you train so hard, it makes you sick. Yeah. And in fact, at one point, there was a, a sick chart on the wall of who had mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> who yeah. had trained so hard. Now, that's not healthy. That's not exercising for the pleasure of moving your body. If you take it to any other behavior, you'd you'd easily recognize how disordered it is. If we said, um, oh, I don't know what other, I guess the one that pops to mind is alcohol, but unfortunately in a Western culture, it is quite normal to sort of drink to yourself sick, I guess. But the idea of doing something until our body rejects us or rejects its state of being, excuse me, um, the idea of doing that is not something that, you know, if you think about that, we're doing something until our body goes, no, I'm, I'm, I, I need to be sick. Well, that's, that's not normal. Um, yet it's celebrated. You're right. And I, I massively resonate. I used to, I couldn't do in terms of my relationship with exercise. It had to be, I couldn't do a non-intense session. Even if I remember trying to go for these recovery, you know, or, or a lower RPE session. I couldn't do it. I'd start out low RP and then go, nah, go for PB. It was like an obsessiveness to, to, to do an intense session. And I think often sports that promote only doing intense sessions, and I think CrossFit is actually probably one of them, actually. Um, you often hear a lot of people feel the need to push themselves in every session. I might be speaking out of line. I'm not, I'm not part of a CrossFit community and I'd be happily corrected if I am. Um, I guess it depends on the coach. We do have some sessions where our coach now is like, literally, you can't do this again until the timer goes. You actually have to rest and nobody is allowed to train until the timer goes. So you'll do something every once every minute or once every three minutes, you'll do a set of something. Cool. So he, we do have an incredible coach at our gym, but I also know of others that it's not like that at all. Mm-hmm. But there is a culture of going hard, so hard. And I mean, what would you say exercise is for? Why would somebody exercise in a healthy way? What would that look like to you? Do you know what? It's it's a massive topic and a massive question. So it'd be really hard to answer concisely, but what, what really matters 
is less I think the behavior and more the relationship with the behavior because actually exercising hard let's I I, I exercise really hard last night yeah. I I actually did a, a running session I did feel quite sick after it the sport I play is an intense sport if I don't run fast at points and, and train certain systems well I'm not going to be able to play the sport at a very good level because it does require that and so does you know if you're an elite crossfitter or you are an elite athlete in a sport that requires a level of intensity and is is about physical fitness predominantly oh, i'm not saying we can't train hard when i think it becomes problematic i think the easiest way for me to sort of summarize this is if your sport or fitness takes up if we talk about a pie chart in terms of our evaluation of ourself and our self-confidence our self-worth and all of this stuff if we talk about a pie chart if it takes up the majority of that pie chart and you go you know i am 90 percent an athlete i'm two percent a brother two one percent a parent whatever and you are 90 percent an athlete and also you view your sport that you are an athlete in or your fitness that you do as being 90 percent to do with either intense exercise looking a certain way or manipulating your body if you've got really high percentages in both of those pie charts, I think the risk is going to be really, really high for disordered relationship with exercise. Um, and actually some of the best athletes I know in their sports also enjoy lots of other aspects of their life mm-hmm. and have a longevity in their life. So sure, they train really hard. They do train hard. They, they work hard but then they also go and they do make sure they travel at other points of the year. And they, they, they have a family that they care for and go and do other things. And they've got these other aspects of their life. They've got a career that they, they, they put effort into. When we see someone only put effort into their sport, which obviously for some people is going to be more easy to do than other. If you are a paid professional athlete and it's also, yeah. your job, you know, we're looking at probably naturally increasing that pie chart just through the fact that it's also your career um, amongst other things but it's so important to have other aspects of your life meaningful aspects of your life Um, I think also um, what the exercise means to you and I'm not talking for professional athletes now I'm talking for everyday people but I know when I was deep in my eating disorder I compulsive exercise was a huge huge part of it and if there was some reason like going on holiday and had to catch I would try and arrange a holiday so that I could still train in the morning before I went sure and if I couldn't train for some reason I felt terrible the anxiety was extreme and I was desperately trying to find other ways of exercising because I'd missed that class and that if it makes you feel like that, yes. that's a problem. That's not a healthy relationship. Whereas now I was going to train yesterday morning and I woke up and my body just felt tired and I just didn't feel like I had the energy. So I was just like, okay, I'm going to rest today. I would never, ever have considered doing that before. In fact, I even went to the gym on crutches because I'd torn a tendon, but I was going to do upper body then. Yeah, I was the same when I did my ACL. Well, my brother bought me a punch bag. Well, that was my form of, of punishing myself and it had to be. I think you raise a really good point. I think probably the easiest question you could ask yourself to assess your relationship with exercise is, how do I feel if I if I wasn't to do an exercise session that I thought I was going to do or had planned to do? Mm. How do I, and how do I feel if it doesn't go the way I want it to? 
let's say I had a running session planned and I, I didn't complete the running session because I felt too out of breath to continue it. How do I feel then? Do I feel like an absolute failure? Like I should have done better and I need to go and make up for it. Um, yeah. What emotions are arising if I, if I skip this exercise session or don't do this exercise session because something else comes up, does every exercise session have to be intense for me? Yeah. Or can I, can I say actually my exercise today can be going for a nice walk um, and enjoying other aspects of the exercise that it can bring. See, I would never have considered that as exercise when I was yeah, needed. Neither. Would never have that wouldn't have been anywhere near enough. That would no same, same. I resonate with it. That that's that's not exercise. That's neat, isn't it? That's yeah. that's, your, that's your steps. That's not your exercise. Yeah. Thermogenesis, or you want to call it. That's not my formal exercise. That's just me being an active human. Well, no, of course it's you know, of course it's you know, it's it's giving me something. It's moving my body and it's giving me something. Therefore, it's exercise, right? And it's it's absolutely valid. But yeah, so I think just those few simple questions. How do I feel if I don't exercise for a bit of time? Do I exercise through injury because I feel really guilty or anxious if I don't do five sessions a week or one session a day or two sessions, whatever it is for you? How are you Mm going to feel if you don't do that? Um, To what extent does exercise build your identity? If I say, would you classify yourself an exerciser? above anything else is that something that resonates with you because if it is maybe it it is certainly very risky um so i think yeah some simple questions can can come into into that and exercise my relationship with exercise is something that i've been working on recently and something that it's a complicated um recovery because especially in the sport and a fitness space because as i said an athlete might need to do for their sport or might want to do or might be driven to do by coaches uh, intense exercise it might be part of the sport and i'm not i'm really not devalidating that is, is that a word devalidating unvalidating it can be today that's for sure going for it uh, i'm not taking away from that it, it is important however if the motivation is um if it feels compulsive if it's done for the sake of manipulating body composition as opposed to sporting um, reasons or performance reasons if it's not being fueled properly and recovered from adequately we're looking at physical injury risk here and we can you know red s and all of these other yeah that come as a result of not fueling ourselves properly Um, and if it's throwing up these intense uncomfortable emotions like anxiety if we were to miss one or shame if we weren't to perform how we wanted to then we need to we need to look at that as well. And it also, if we think we're a better human because we did it, if we think, do you know what, I'm an absolute boss because I did that, and I deserve I deserve now um, the the respect I'm getting from my teammates for doing this session or whatever. Maybe that's also something that's a risky uh, concept. Also, if you're exercising to earn food, yeah, absolutely, yes. Which is no, everyone deserves to eat whether they exercise or not. Mm. Absolutely. Um, what do you feel about fitness trackers? Helpful or harmful? Very popular, I know. And certainly when I was in my eating disorder, I totally relied on my fitness tracker yep. to the point where if I forgot to track an exercise, it didn't count and I had to do it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see that really it's, really, it's a really strange concept, but it's so common, isn't it? If, it? if it's not tracked, does it count? You know, that, that. Yeah. So you literally have to do the really, whole workout again. Really common. I see a lot of people say this in the space now. I, I would say they're doing more harm than good to the, to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, 
I would say that. I, I don't think they're sort of an inherently harmful thing, but I think with the culture that we live in in a Western society, they feed into the diet culture and, you know, the celebration of 10,000 steps, that arbitrary number that was, oh, I forget the history of it, but it was some Japanese blimmin thing before before the Olympics of, and there was no science behind it. It was one of those things that was suggested. But like BMI then. Oh, exactly like BMI, absolutely no science behind it at all. But something that's just for some reason cotton, you know, cottoned on and the fact that they all celebrate your 10,000. You see a lot of people get very obsessive about the amount of steps they do or about tracking their exercise about tracking their heart rate uh, or whatever else it might be. And I think it starts treating us like robots or starts promoting the idea that we are robots that have to do this and do this. And it doesn't look at any depth to a behavior. It just looks at the surface level behavior. Have you hit 10,000 steps tick or not tick? It doesn't why we're wanting to hit 10,000. Is it, is it a compulsive thing? Is it a needed thing? Am I feeling obsessed if I don't hit it? Am I feeling really anxious if I don't hit it? Am I feeling like a failure? Do I feel like my sense of worth is dependent on the amount of exercise I do? It's not looking at any depth underneath these behaviours. It's just looking at 10,000 tick, 9,999, not tick. You're going to die tomorrow of diabetes. It's yes. very black and white, isn't it, thinking when you it think It brings a lot, a lot of fear and a lot of feeling less than. Yes, absolutely. And and for, you know, and the beliefs behind a lot of the stuff that maybe people are working towards with them are, are not valid or are not based in science or are not, you know, there's not any research to suggest that 10,000 is important. I think actually from memory, and I'll be happy if someone does know the paper that I'm thinking about that would say otherwise, but I think from memory it's 7,500 roughly would actually be giving you far more benefit. So that 10,000. And I'm not, I'm not, by the way, promoting whatsoever as an intuitive, someone into intuitive eating. I'm not promoting, well, let's start tracking to 7,500. I'm just saying that <laughs> the inaccuracy of the stuff that we're told is often rife. We're often just told stuff that isn't based in research. And even these watches, I've got one on right now. So um, I don't track anything on here. I actually use it for the weather. Um, <laughs> I find it really interesting um, and helpful for the weather. But, you know, you get a celebration thing for 10,000. So even these watches, the Fitbit, yeah. the Apple watches have bought into the 10,000 steps thing. And they start automatically tracking you now as well. Might, absolutely, yeah. Which is why I no longer wear mine. <laughs> oh, well, and, and good for you. You know, and I find it, I find it. So so I'm not saying these are useless. I actually find it personally very helpful. If I do exercise and go for a run, one thing I love about these is I can listen to music without taking my phone, which I find uncomfortable to hold. Yes. Well, yeah, that's that. a great part of it right and I do find it useful that I can got my stopwatch on here and, and the thing so I can if I'm doing an interval session I need to go every minute every two minutes I can use this instead of having to look at my phone so that's handy and I'm not saying they're entirely useless because actually that's really helpful however I do think they feed into a lot of the athletic diet culture problems that we see yeah so tell me we've looked at a lot of the cultures that are unhealthy unhelpful and disordered within the fitness industry how does the flourished athlete help that what yeah 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 well brilliant so I mean the the first thing that the the flourishing athlete looks at is rejecting athletic diet culture recognizing it because as we've just talked about it's so normalized all these things are normalized they're, they're, and actually, as I said, 
when I was struggling, unbeknownst to me that I was struggling, I thought I was flourishing. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> I was struggling. I didn't know any of this stuff. What I've really based the athletic, um, what I've really based the flourishing athlete about is what would have helped me when I was really struggling, because I know a lot of people out there are also in the same position I was. What would have helped me in that in that place? Um, so yeah, we look at we look at in terms of the 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 way I anticipate. I'm not articulating this well at all, but the way I anticipate the flourishing athlete going is at the moment I'm working on uh, an online course called the intuitive athlete um okay and by the way the name might change um <laughs> it's, it's, it's two years That's after it. It's wrong with it. Um, but yeah at the moment it's called the intuitive athlete and that is the adapted intuitive eating um framework for athletes that is going to teach athletes how do i eat intuitively maybe i'm sick of tracking i feel obsessed with tracking my calories and my macros and eating specifically and eating like a robot and my sports nutrition and i feel obsessed with my body and i've i've got all of this tied up and i don't have a very peaceful relationship with food and my body maybe i'm binge eating and restricting and all of this stuff how do i develop a positive relationship with food body and myself well the food bit we're looking at the intuitive athlete and that's what i'm working on at the moment and that is an adapted model um for athletes and it's it's changing all the time i'm I'm not i'm speaking to lots of different sort of experts in the field about it um but let me get up my um document so i can actually somewhat give an accurate accurate um example of where we're currently at with it because there's a lot of nuance with athletes with intuitive eating that I think there's less of in the general population. Um, Mm -hmm. So at the moment we've got, yeah, rejecting the athletic diet mentality because, uh, you know, similar to, it's all based off the original intuitive eating model. So I must give credit. I'm not trying to say I've recreated, I've created this. It's based off that. So reject the athletic diet mentality, which I think there's some additional things in place for athletes. They may feel that actually restricting their, their diet is really important for their performance. Often it's less important than people um, feel, but it's an understandable thing to have arisen. So we'll, we'll look at dismantling that as the first step. Eating regular, balanced, nutritious meals is, is obviously an important aspect as well. So that's sort of our step two. Then we're looking at once we've re-established um, hunger and fullness, because that can often go with long-term dietary restriction. Um, we're looking at working on honouring our hunger, respecting fullness, eating when hungry. And it's very important to emphasize as well with this model, I want it to be relevant for as many athletes as possible. So an endurance runner or an ultra marathon runner or, you know, an endurance athlete, they may need to at times not honor their hunger and respect their fullness. They might need to fuel themselves more than their body is telling them they need. Yes. They have the knowledge they're about to go and run a hundred miles today. And that's really important. Um, and then the, the, the next three are very similar. So challenging the food police and discovering the satisfaction factor and respecting your body. And that one's massive for athletes, respecting huge. your body. It's huge because not a machine. you're not a machine and you're dealt some genetics that give you a potential. If you try playing with your genetics outside of what you've been given, you, you're going to be doing some harm here. Um, and that's what that's all about. In, in the, And I put this, I think, on my on a post on instagram the other day that was sort of along the lines of if you were if you're five foot tall you might understand that becoming a professional basketball player is unlikely 
you know, you're, the odds are stacked against you. So they are definitely uh, because of your genetics, and it's easier to accept that because we accept that height is is genetic based. I think it's, I think it's eighty to ninety percent genetic based height. There's some environmental influences early on in life, in particular, I'd imagine that can influence how tall we become. Well, body weight and shape is fifty to eighty percent genetic, depending on the individual. Well, that's not miles away from your 80 to 90 percent of height but because it is technically possible to change our body through severe calorie restriction or overeating if we're trying to gain weight or whatever and because of a lot of it's a very multifaceted bit this but and because of a lot of the diet culture and the tying of value and, and moral virtue with thinness and all of this stuff we think that changing our body weight and shape is is a far more acceptable thing to do than changing our height, even though it's so heavily based in genetics. And if we look at, let's say, a lean sport, let's say, a, let's say an ultra marathon runner, an ultra marathon runner, an elite ultra marathon runner, um, may benefit from having low levels of body fat, and the people at the top of their sport will have low levels of body fat. If you look at everyone yeah. running take a marathon everyone running a marathon and competing at the best time sure it's an advantage not to carry excess weight however if your genetics naturally mean that you hold excess weight or you not excess i don't even like the word excess so i scrap the word excess i don't like the word i just use there if just means that you exist in a larger body yeah maybe ultra marathon running at an elite level isn't the sport that you were built to do and that's okay you can do it at an amateur level and you can enjoy it but if you're trying to get yourself as lean as possible to do this sport at an elite level you're comparing yourself and your body against people who have the genetics in terms of their body potentially to do this sport at an elite level it's not a fair comparison and it leads to us restricting our food and trying to change our body when it's just not something our body has the um the script to do you know it doesn't have the and genetic tool to do it's not actually sustainable long term oh. anyway as most people that seem to yo-yo diet know yeah. unless you are existing within a restrictive eating disorder Spot on. in which case that's hell anyway and it's yeah. it's not actually living a life it's just existing absolutely and, and, it, and it, as we can't promote this it's absolutely yeah it will be promoted unfortunately yes. but we can't promote it so that respect your body one's massive about that about respect what you've got as a genetic blueprint um, and don't try mucking with it because yeah as you said restricting your body weight which is something i was doing in whilst i was playing an elite elite level of sport um you will be thinking about food all the time you will be injured far more often than you would have been if you were feeding yourself adequately your physical health can take a massive massive turn for the worse um yeah and, 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 health. and your mental health, all of it, all of it, everything. The risk is not worth it and it is not okay to be promoted at all. So exist in the body that you've been given, um, which is what the whole intuitive eating for athletes is about. It's a non-diet approach to sports nutrition. It's it's a way of, okay, how do we how do we do as well as we can in our sport and our discipline in a healthy way, in a sustainable way, in a way that promotes physical and mental well-being instead of um, a restrictive way or a way where we have to manipulate our body tightly in order to succeed because that's not healthy it's not sustainable um so yeah and then we're looking at step seven is all about incorporating sports nutrition principles so actually using okay we've looked at you know honoring our intuition our hunger our fullness and the interceptive awareness side of it but 
it is important that if I'm an athlete and I'm and I'm doing any intense exercise, I do need to elevate my protein levels at times. Yes. Because from a sign of body respect, that's important to repair my body um, and for me to adapt and advance. That's important. So it's looking at the motivation and the methods of us having elevated protein. It's not saying let's track every gram that goes into our mouth and let's aim for 1.6 grams of protein per kilowatt of lean mass and all of this stuff. It's not saying that. It's saying, okay, we need elevated protein. We know we need it within this range. What does that look like? And how do we go about flexibly going towards, you know, elevating our protein or or fueling ourselves appropriately before a long run or throughout a long run or before a training session or whatever? And then the last part um, is about how and when do we go about changing our body composition in a safest way as possible? And and it doesn't promote body composition changing, the intuitive athlete. It doesn't promote it. It says let's not change our body composition or let's not um, restrict our weight, sorry, in particular, um, when avoidable. However, I want this to be accessible to every athlete. And if I've got someone who is a um, a boxer, who has to make weight at some point before a fight, you might need to drop some weight. That might be an actual part of the sport. If you're a professional boxer, you might need to do that. So there's sort of three paths that I um, envisage it going by. The first step is always learning, practicing and implementing the intuitive eating principles, right? The intuitive eating for athletes model. Preferably then we continue the intuitive eating forever going forward happy days that's cool if it's a sport like football rugby touch rugby whatever where there isn't a specific body weight that is needed in order for you to be able to compete in the sport you know i can compete technically at any body weight however then for other let's say let's say a weight class sport boxing you eat intuitively 99 percent of the time but then we look at how do we safely implement a, a a temporary dieting strategy so that we hit the weight maybe we need to that is a healthy weight class for us and we're not looking at yeah lower weight class and all these other yes, that's a big a very valid point isn't it some people just want to compete in a class that's really not healthy for them spot on. spot on so it would we, we teach all about that stuff that's what that module is about teach all, and then i guess some people might want might think actually i do need to gain weight um i, I actually do need to gain some weight for my event i am i am it, it's a struggle for me to do this i was speaking to someone who was um really inspiring uh, woman actually but she was she was saying that you know she wanted some more weight for sledge pushes in a in a sport i'm not going to go into the details of it because she was struggling with the sled pushes and she's she gained some weight and she she was improving her ability to push the sledge and that was brilliant right um so how do we adapt the intuitive eating principles to promote weight gain in as healthy a way as possible i think weight restrictions comes with a lot more risk than weight gain because of the psychological effects that calorie restriction has on the body in comparison to feeding your body enough calories um but they're the three sort of paths we go down we always learn nutrition uh, intuitive eating first then we either continue with it that's best case scenario second one is we continue with it 90 percent of the time and then periodically we look at how we lose a little bit of weight for a weight competition if needed and then the other um, scenario is if we need to gain some weight how do we adapt the intuitive eating model to promote um, safe weight gain Um, 
you know, and I, I wrote down here that it's important that the motivate. So we talk about that last one about safely changing body composition. Um, and, and it says here that the, the most important bit is that the weight loss or the, yeah, the temporary weight loss is based on a few different factors of the intuitive eating principles have been learned and practiced first, preferably also positive body image work and compassion work has been done too. The weight loss diet is temporary, not a permanent restriction of body weight. It is a temporary thing for performance reasons. So that's the third bit as well. It's motivated by sporting performance reasons rather than health or aesthetic reasons. The methods are as flexible as possible, which is something we'll go into in, in that topic. Um, the generic and person specific risks are made clear beforehand i.e if someone's had disordered eating and eating disorder beforehand well this is a massively risky thing and incredibly incredibly unlikely that you should ever think about doing this so we make the risks massively clear um and you are supported by an intuitive eating informed sports nutritionist or dietitian throughout the whole process so it's saying it's it's making the risk very clear. We, I, I, I not this is not a weight loss method. It is an intuitive yeah. occasional weight loss might be absolutely needed by specific athletes. Um, I wanted to basically I wanted to make it as inclusive as possible, Julie. I wanted to I wanted I didn't want an athlete to want to follow this and feel like they couldn't because of the requirements of their sport. I wanted. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think this is something that's so, so important because there is so much body image disorder, eating disorder or disordered eating and compulsive exercising in the fitness world. And because of diet culture and fitness culture, it's so validated. And people think that as you did, as I did at points, think that what they're doing is for the best and for health and think that actually almost like they're winning at life by doing these things. Yeah. And so raising awareness is so important because our bodies know what they're doing. They know how to look after us. And if we only just started to trust our bodies and stop trying to manipulate them, and just listen, we would all be in so much better health. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like we've talked a lot today and I've given a lot of examples of where the model is really tough to implement. So we're talking about, I don't know, in lean sports and for an athlete who is paid for their sport. This this model is, is for any exerciser, is what I want it to be, right? That's what I'm passionate yeah. about, helping is people involved in fitness as well. So not just elite athletes in a sport, but, you know, someone who's into their fitness at the gym. Well, if you're into your fitness at the gym, this is actually a really easy model to implement because you don't have a, or an easy, sorry, an easier model to implement because you don't have a, let's say, a career based on running a track around a track at a certain time where a level of leanness might help you do that. Instead, we're exercising because we really value it. Maybe we've got it tied up in our, in our identity as looking a certain way too. But doing all this work means that we can now be a fitness enthusiast and relate to fitness in so much of a healthier way and a flexible way, in a way that brings to our life in a lot, a lot more of a, um, 
yeah brings a lot more to our life not just how we control our body and whether we have big biceps or whether we have a six pack but actually it becomes about health it becomes about um, physical health and mental health it becomes about enjoyment it becomes about community it becomes about a meaningful aspect of our life without it completely taking over our life and and i think that's it, you know the point i'm trying to say is yeah we've we've talked a lot about throughout the the the, the um, podcast about the tougher people yes athletes for this to be implemented in but actually it's really implementable in a in a vast range of athletes it just helps people stay in their natural bodies and if you are just doing things naturally you tend to be a lot sorry turn that on a lot calmer a lot happier and not living in the stress response where you're worried about everything all the time which actually makes you a lot healthier if you're not in that response. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. And that's what we look at, or we're going to look at, I'm miles away from this, but <coughs> also create three, so three courses is what I anticipate creating. We've got this intuitive athlete and the adapted intuitive eating model for athletes that we're teaching in that. The body positive athletes are all about uh, body image. And then the compassionate athlete. And in the compassionate athlete, I, I want to delve into our motivations for competing or for being into fitness or being into sport why are we doing this because there's a big difference between it coming from a place of fear and a requirement for external validation and something that just naturally became part of our our identity at school and for doing it from a really healthy place of it bringing a lot of value to our life we've got meaningful connections in it i enjoy the competing i enjoy this aspect but i've got other aspects as well of my life as well in my life that are also important there's a real big difference between the motivators for us to want to be into sport or into fitness and those are so so key and often not even looked at because my motivations were so purely coming from a place of having low self-esteem as a child gaining some compliments as i gained some muscle and became leaner and thinking well this is now my self-worth this yes. is feel good and that's not a healthy place to want to um, spend hours in the gym from you know that's not, okay. not a healthy motivator that's, that's not coming from a kind and compassionate place it's coming from a place of fear a place of restriction and I'm spending my whole time in this yeah this fear-based motivation system um so yeah Just, I want to look at that in other in other aspects as well of the flourishing athlete awesome so how can people work with you then how can they find you yeah, well, at the moment, working with me is tough simply because of um, I also work a full time do- uh, job as a mental health nutritionist. So I'm, I'm um, I feel like I'm busy at the moment in terms of this is a massive part of my side project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I want to invest all my time into, but uh, naturally working habits. And I love my job as well, by the way, as a mental health nutritionist. It's amazing. Um, but if you look, you can find me on Instagram I'm at the moment. Um, as I said, this is only really been on instagram for a couple of months so i'm i'm trying to spread awareness and and uh, help as many people as possible on instagram through obviously free content which is what instagram is um so yeah find me on instagram the flourishing athlete and stay tuned on there for more um because yeah hopefully a lot more is coming very soon awesome and i'll put a link for that in the show notes um is there anything any questions i haven't asked or anything else that you'd like to cover and honestly i feel like we've covered a lot i think we've had a very i think we have i think we've uh yeah gone great guns today absolutely yeah so nothing springs to mind i think we've uh yeah i think we've we've covered a lot of ground today 
Awesome. And yeah, raising awareness is just so important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on. Um, it's been great having you as a guest. I've learned so much. It's been brilliant. brilliant. No, thanks for having me as well, Julia. I appreciate it. It's been a, yeah, a very insightful talk. You're so welcome. And thank you, everybody, for listening today. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed today's podcast. Please like and rate this podcast five stars to enable us to reach other people. And I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do remember to give me a follow and a five-star rating. This will enable me to reach more people that need help. If you would like to talk to me about how to work with me and you're ready to take the next step, just check out my website at juliatrahane.com. Thank you for listening. I'm so grateful.